I'm Daniela, and this is my first podcast. I'm a design teacher, writer, collector, and a lover of the inner beauty and the stories behind design and architecture. I grew up in Israel and moved to New York in my early 20s. And it is here in the Big Apple that I've made my home and forged my passion for design. Because when you live in New York, when you are in New York, you are surrounded by design and architecture 24-7, all the time, every minute. Design opened my world, and through it, I've learned a lot of what I know. And I have entered an eternal journey of discovery. I teach thousands and thousands of students every year from all over the world. And I always try to instill that passion that I have. Now here in this podcast, Designing the 21st Century, I want to show my audience the value of understanding a building, of understanding those objects in everyday use. Because when you appreciate and cherish The things around you, your world is becoming enriched, deeper, much more beautiful. And I'm going to expose you to the most fascinating stories told by the leading figures in the world of design. I decided to open my podcast on International Women's Day on March 8th. So let's remember today that legal restrictions have kept two 0.7 billion women from accessing the same choice of jobs as men. Let's remember that less than 25% of politicians and decision makers are women, and that one in three women still experience gender-based violence. I asked five women, friends and colleagues, who are champions of design and whose work I admire, to help me opening this podcast. Cindy Allen is the legendary editor-in-chief of Interior Design Magazine. Edwina Fungal is a landscape designer who cares about nature and sustainability. Jennifer Olshin is a partner of Friedman Benda Gallery, a platform for cutting-edge contemporary design. And Beatrice Galili is a curator and writer of contemporary architecture and design. Susie Rodriguez is an architect who believes in the power of architecture to affect change and to improve the quality of life for all. So join me to Designing the 21st Century. Cindy Allen has been the editor-in-chief of Interior Design Magazine for the past two decades and the founder of its Best of the Year Awards. Through these platforms and through her passion and vision, she constantly creates design inspiration for over 8 million readers. Cindy is considered a leading force, a powerhouse supporter of the architecture and design communities. Cindy, the last time I saw you was at an event that for me, it was just the last event before the pandemic, when you were honored by the Longhouse Reserve. It was an amazing event. It was. It was. Hi, Daniela. Yes. <laughs> and since then, the world really has changed, forcing us all to adapt and to reinvent 
ourselves. So what happened to the interior design world in the past year? Oh my goodness, what didn't? Well, first of all, it's so great to be with you. And I just heard from Joseph Walsh, who was also honored because it was like our one year anniversary. So Longhouse holds a lot of meaning. It was the last event. So thank you for that. Everything has changed for everybody, right? We are all impacted. That's our one universal truth that we've all suffered. We've all suffered. And, you know, from the perspective of the design industry, we really believe that design will help move us into the future. And design will completely change in every category of our industry. So for instance, right now, let's talk about healthcare, right? So in healthcare, I just gave a big award to a firm called ZGF for the Lundquist Institute in LA. And they are right on the ground right now working on the vaccine for COVID. So imagine the power of, they used to be in a barrack, And now imagine the power of being in a beautifully designed architectural space for the scientists that are working around the clock. Like to me, I kind of get chills when I think about that because I think, wow, the power of design to like even heal the scientists as they're like working on COVID. And that's like an ultimate example. Oh my God, it's, it's so touching to think about that. And they are right there. Like, I don't know what's coming out right now, but I know they're in the third phase of COVID. And I have like good friend, like Eve Behar, he has a firm called Fuse Project and they worked on very inexpensive ventilator. Like that's solving problems right now for people who need it, for all of us. So design is gonna answer a lot of questions. How about hospitality? Hospitality, I used to always call them the golden children because everybody I know wanted to design a hotel, right? And then the pandemic hit and everyone just got, sliced to the ground, everything stopped. But all the research is telling us the minute that everyone can get out of their house, they're all going to travel again, right? So the healthcare industry is going to boom. And there's so many projects that are like getting set up for that. Can can you give an example? Oh, geez. Uh, Good friends of mine, uh, Adam and Drew from, it's called Inc. Architecture, amazing designers and architects actually. And they just finished photographing and we were publishing during the pandemic, uh, the Joseph Hotel in Nashville. And it was all happening. And they and the hotel, you know, in hospitality, they're trying to be extremely sensitive and be good to the guests and look at, you know, future solutions. But there are hotels that are happening right now. Right. So they were telling me how they were photographing the restaurant and everything was like so separated for the guest, but for the photography, that would have looked weird. So they had to bring in the more tables. And then, but the reality was, you know, you were not allowed to have a full restaurant anymore. So that's, it's sort of interesting how we're trying to keep documenting things. Um, I had another photographer who said to me, we need to document this office before they put up all the, you know, there's all these lucite shields and barriers that are, that going up kind of quote unquote, temporarily until people can get back in the office and find like more permanent solutions. And I can tell you that the manufacturers in our industry are developing all types of innovative products that look good and function, right? And what do you think about interior design? Because you know trends. Can you number a couple of trends that were born out of the pandemic? You know, it's interesting because When we think about like our home, right, the home office, the home office was nothing before, right? 
Uh, and you think about all of, I mean, Danielle, I think about all of your high profile designer friends who are now going back into projects that they designed where now they actually need to live in the space because <laughs> they're a lot of these people are world travelers and they're not always in the space and it actually needs to function and they need to have a room for their kids to go to school and they need a real home office, not just like, you know, a desk somewhere or a space that was never utilized before. So that I find that really interesting. You know, the pandemic also has been sort of a great source of evoking memories and nostalgia. Do you feel this way? Yes, of course. I became editor-in-chief. My first issue was a New York issue. And we had just gone to press. And I had on the cover Mark Morrison Dance Studio in, in Brooklyn. And it was this Kelly Green space with a desk and these paper mache heads on it. And it was super cool, but these paper mache heads on it, right? And then 9-11 hit and it said greater New York on it. It was, it was, you know, it was crazy. Like, so anyway, we, we went to the printer and I put a black cover over it. I mean, it was so ominous, that cover, which was supposed to be so joyful, ended up being so ominous, put a black cover and wrote a note to everybody. But it made me not only grow up, but really think about how I wanted to develop my career as editor-in-chief and really be of service to the community and really be a leader in the community. My father is a math professor, so it's kind of in my DNA, but really, how do you really encourage an industry? How do you know everything about that industry so that you can move things forward? How do you support the designers in all the different categories that we cover, whether commercial, which is a big piece, and residential. And it changed my perspective and I became a leader in that way. Edwina von Gall is a prolific and pioneer landscape designer who is based in the Hamptons. She creates sustainable ecological landscapes that are magical and so beautiful. Through her two nonprofit organizations, the Perfect Earth Project and Two Thirds for the Birds, she promotes ideas of toxic free landscapes, the use of environmentally friendly techniques, saving the earth, avoiding invasive plants, and preserving native species. Edwina, I told you that I love your work already, you know that. And I want to ask you, what is a good landscape design today? And whether it's different than what it was when you first started your career? Well, the, the answer to the second part of that is really easy. It's yes, <laughs> very different. The answer to the first part, I could go on a long time, so I'll try to keep this simple. Um, because, of course, fashions change. And so that's part of what a good landscape design is, is perception. You know, what are we seeing when we look at it? But then what we've come to today is much more, what is the landscape doing as well? What, what is happening there that is not hurting the earth, but actually maybe even healing the earth because we're so much in need of that, you know? And so in a way, our, I think our landscapes have, worked cross purposes to that as we have become more and more engaged and more and more people hire landscape designers and more and more, they, they, there's become more like a, a rigid fashion kind of concept about what a landscape is. And, and they become more 
more straitjacketed almost. In most cases, that is not beneficial to nature because they're 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 more they're more fashionable. And you know, so like wearing nothing but des- like a one kind of designer, you know, and it's being very it's very strict. So are you saying that if the landscape design does not address the earth, then it's not a good landscape design according to today's perceptions and values? That's a good way to put it, because, you know, what is good in design and everything? But it, it, I don't think that anyone who built a building nowadays that was completely disrespectful of, let's say, energy use, that anybody would really feel good about calling it good. And, you know, on the same note, you are always promoting a strong connection to nature. What happens when nature is not allowed to speak and when a landscape design is created in a way that does not allow nature to speak? I think that there are sort of two main effects because that's the way we look at everything. One is anthropomorphically or anthropogenically, um, which is from our perspective. For me, it's exhausting because when you're not allowing nature to speak, it is a constant resource expense to keep her quiet. Nature is a much more powerful force than we are. So you are constantly at work. Well, well, what? Give me an example. What does it mean? A landscape design that does that? Okay, so it's one that maybe requires a great deal of pruning. So every year you're cutting plants into shapes. People really respond positive to plants cut into shapes because then they don't have to know anything about them. They just say that's a round shrub and that's a square one. And it's really easy to direct a landscape like that. But you have to cut them at least, depending on the plant, at least twice a year, many times more. And every cut's a wound. So every one of those plants is stressed. And so they require additional because you're taking off what they're trying to grow. They need those leaves. You take them away. So they need feeding and they need caring and they need, they need medicine you know, in a way to heal, to continually heal. And that's like painful for me to watch. And, and the Hamptons is filled with landscape designs like that. Mm-hmm. But your clients are certainly people that are not only influencers, but people that have very, very good taste. and that allows you to spread the, the message, right? It does. Yeah, I, I've been really lucky that way, you know, that somehow or other, this dialogue has, I, I just hit the ground at the right time. So I was able to learn from people like the original, like, because originally that 30 years ago, that was the English garden movement. It's just so inspiring, everything that you say here. And you have this initiative called Two Thirds for the Birds. Yes. What is it? Well, after running Perfect Earth Project for a while, in which we promote uh, chemical-free, nature-based landscape practices, um, I heard about the tr- the bird die-off. So we've lost 3 billion birds since the 70s. And this came out in 2017, the, the science. And... It really affected me. And I noticed that it affected many, many people, everyone who read about it. They don't respond like that to the loss of a plant. <laughs> you know, people just don't. And I realized, well, this is, a, this is a conversation. This is a point of connection for people. Whether you have a landscape or not, you can really dig in with this. Like, this is something that means tremendously to me, and I will notice. And also then there's a scientist named Doug Tallamy who concurrently came out with science that showed 
why, why are the birds dying? And what is the alternative? And so birds are dying because of loss of habitat and use of pesticides. Those are the two things the Perfect Earth Project addresses. And so Doug said, he quantified it. He said, if a bird has 70% native plants in its range, its population will be stable. So I could go back to everybody and say, okay, here's a goal. This is a really simple goal, not just like, oh, it's nice to plant native plants. You should really be planting more native plants. Nope. So I just made a simple conversion of 70% to two thirds and it rhymes. And I said, okay, I'm simply going to ask everyone, especially in the landscape design world, because as far as landscapes go, we are the influencers because it's our gardens that get published. It's our gardens that people see in their magazines and then they emulate at home. And you yourself will be making this massive difference in terms of our bird populations and our insects. And it's, it serves the pollinators. It serves everything. This program is supported by Regorate, specializing in the sale of modern and contemporary art, ceramics, jewelry, and design at auction. With a strong independent voice and dedication to presenting materials in fresh and innovative ways, Regorate hosts more than 50 curated auctions each year in a broad range of categories and at various price points. This spring, Regorate is pleased to present a special collection of works from the legendary Italian firm Danese, alongside multiple auctions of art and design, demonstrating that everyone can live with great pieces. For nearly 15 years, Friedman Bender Gallery has focused on cutting-edge collectible design by living artists. Partner Jennifer Olshin knows more about the evolution of collectible contemporary design and about the voices of the most radical designers than anyone I know. She has worked with artists all over the world, helping them to shape their message and to bring dreams to reality. Jennifer, the design that you select, that you present at the gallery, is rather complex and it has many layers. You really cannot fully understand it on just the aesthetic level alone. Why? The work we show is for sure compelling to the eye. These works draw you in, but they also, they echo, they trigger memories, they memorialize and sensationalize, they document, they provoke, they tell stories. And each of the stories is told by the maker, the maker is the narrator, and each work reflects that voice. And it's certainly a layered worldview, but very, very importantly is that these works carry messages and communication is their key function. Some of the messages are very raw. Some are directly translatable or readable. Mirroring environments, circumstances, autobiographical details, and others are embedded, encrypted. But the commentary is is always there. Can you give an example of one of your artists that carries these layers? Yeah, often most poignantly are the ones where we immediately identify an autobiographical story or chain of events. And for example, with Najla Zain, it's very apparent. One series of works called Distortion, which is a series of benches, stems from a very deeply personal moment, which is her transition into motherhood. And these benches 
reflect that alienation that she felt while she was pregnant, the joy she felt afterwards, the displacement, the, the reorganization of the world around her is, it comes through in these benches. And, and obviously the benches are very, very beautiful. Yes. I mean, I don't know anybody who wouldn't want to have one of those white benches in their homes. Yeah. Also not immediately readable. You, sometimes you don't notice the bump or you don't know where the bump starts or finishes. And I think that a design that's not easily figure outable is something that you want to live with forever because as many times as you look at it, you never get your head around it. And so each time it's a new experience. So if you look at those benches, you see very beautiful uh, piece of furniture and you can enjoy it for what it is. But then if you understand the narrative behind it, then you can enjoy it more and for a longer period of time. I think so. And also because it, it bridges into the realm of emotion. And I think that emotion doesn't have boundaries and barriers so it's this endless object of contemplation and engagement. And there are a number of artists in the roster that have manifested emotion as their primary function through objects. Sam Ross is, a, is somebody who's new to our roster, and he created a chair called the trauma chair. That chair is a, an amazing condensation of ideas but he sees it also as a uh, manifestation of emotion, in this case, pain. Sam Ross is somebody who created something in the, in the fashion world called the articulate garment. So it's actually very interesting, translated into the medium of a chair or, or some other type of object or an installation or, or any of the other uh, materials that he works with, is that he's condensed an incredible intellectual pursuit, um, emotions, narratives of history of the of the black diaspora, of the past, of the future. All of this comes in a very layered breath into the object. And so it becomes this very layered and pluralistic experience that has now taken on a palatable form, which we can sit on. So very complex. So do you think that contemporary design has to have those layers and narratives in order to be an excellent example of contemporary design? We focus on this area of embedded ideas into works of art. Sometimes there's a magic that happens in terms of form or in terms of a moment captured in an object or a material that is unexplainably delightful, intriguing, and somehow goes down in design history. Beatrice Galili is a curator and writer of contemporary architecture and design. Former curator of architecture at the Met, she's the director and founder of this amazing nonprofit institution called The World Around, which comes to expose architecture culture of today through conferences and other platforms. Her first book, Radical Architecture of the Future, was published in January. So I read your book and some of the projects that you include in your book look 
like they belong more in science fiction. And some of them are not even buildings. And you clearly say in your book that radical architecture today is born from activism, from criticism, performance, but also great focus on process and experimentations with materials, and that the architects are engaged with different ideas like sustainability, and they care about the future of the world. So what is radical architecture today? Thank you so much for, for inviting me, um, Daniela. It's, I feel very honored and I'm so thrilled that you like the book and that you're engaging with it. For me, you know, I'm somebody who uh, I see architecture everywhere. You know, when you love something, you're kind of reminded about architecture with everything that you, that you see and you look at. And for me, you know, I see architecture in so many things, you know, I see architecture in contemporary art. I see architecture in philosophy. I see architecture in design. You know, I see the architectural thinking and I see how ideas that live and exist in these other distances of technically other disciplines could really influence the built environment for the better. And so when I think about what's radical architecture, it's almost like a radical way of looking at architecture. It's, you know, radical um, is a word that we use when we think of something that's not mainstream or not conventional or is pushing a little bit at the expectations or challenging, confronting uh, the norms um, of the time. And I really like to imagine that everything in the book is, is a surprise. You know, I love seeing people's faces when they look at a project and they, they just didn't expect to see that in an architecture book. And then you look at it again and you're like, oh, wow, actually, yes, this is also architecture. And I can understand architecture better, not by looking at a building, but by looking at someone who's thinking about architecture laterally, by what it means and what it represents. Um, so that's, to me, you know, it's, it's more about like anything that isn't normal <laughs> somehow can become radical in these moments of very polarized opinions about everything, you know. So can you give an example of specific like fresh and unexpected materials or type of buildings? Sometimes it's about a completely fresh approach to uh, a context or a building. I love the example of Freddie Mamani, who is an architect in Bolivia. And he, he as he as a designer was he he didn't want to respond to what was already there. He didn't want to create a, a traditional building in in the mode of what exists around him in Bolivia, which is where he's from. He comes from an indigenous community, and he wanted to represent use architecture to represent that community to create visibility for that community. So the building wasn't just a, a manifestation of of um, economy and you know a sort of business proposal for the client. It's an opportunity for him to talk about his indigenous culture. Culture, the Amaran people. And the way he did it is like so amazing, right? Like so vivid. The colors that he chose are, are taken from the fabrics and the, the cloths of the indigenous, um, the way that they were weaving and the, and the colors of the skirts. And um, the symbolism comes from the ancient symbolism um, from his people that are used time and time again throughout the culture. And so for him, it's like, how can I use architecture? How can architecture be more explicitly in favor of his history. I found those buildings in your book so inspiring. And, and I have a question to you. If you can give a tool on how to evaluate 
architecture today. How to determine whether a building is good or not good? Because I think there is a huge confusion and people really don't know how to evaluate a building. Is it good? Does it mean that it was designed? And if it was designed by a very well-known architect, does it mean that it is good? Can you help? You know, I really think that is such a great critique of contemporary architecture that designers just and architects haven't made a case for themselves. You know, it's not evident what is a good building and what isn't a good building. And I think people rightly feel uh, ambivalent sometimes about contemporary architecture because they don't feel that they have the information or the tools to be able to, t- to determine or critique it themselves. I first tried to consider all of the different ways that architecture responds to its environment, you know, so how does it respond to its neighbors? You know, how does it respond to the street? What is happening on the street level to, to kind of, to welcome you in? Does it contribute to the city? Does it contribute to its context? And do you feel welcome? And, you know, does it add something to the street? Does it add something, you know, to its space? And I think that that's like a really first moment for me. It's like, what's that handshake? Peter Zumter always says like the handshake of the building is the most important moment of the building. It's like the, the door handle, you know, what's that first moment like? What does the architect want you to feel? I genuinely would love people to feel that architecture is something that they are part of and should feel very welcome to contribute, you know, what they like and what they don't like. Susan Rodriguez founded her New York-based architecture office in 2016 after practicing for more than 30 years. Designing public buildings is her own main focus, and she creates spaces that distill the essence of cultures and communities. Her award-winning body of work is recognized internationally for contributing to the vitality of cities, landscapes, and also to the communities and institutions they serve. Susan, 25 years ago, you designed a research center in Connecticut for an American Indian tribe. And you learned a really important lesson that architecture can be interpreted in many different ways that architecture is subjective. I did. It was a really quite amazing experience, difficult experience, but this was a brand new uh, facility for the Mashantucket Pequot tribe, 320,000 square feet, how to create something that was unique. And as we began, we really uncovered as much as we could about the tribal history, their sort of mark on the land, their ownership of the land, their loss of the land, and tried to think about how we could create something that was really quite unique and special of that place and that told their story. And our first efforts, um, I think, were received well, but guardedly. It was interesting in the dialogue with the tribal leaders. At first, it was like, well, that's a very interesting design, but I'm not sure it tells our story. I was a little taken aback. I mean, this was 25 years ago or more. And trying to think, what does that mean? And what it meant was, I think that we needed to get more deeply curious and committed to what they valued personally and as a tribe. Which is what? They're artifacts very much. They have a 
their history and their those awareness of their um, riches, their current riches have been very challenging. So any case, back to the story of um, creating this museum and research center for them. I think our interest became understanding, as I said, what they value deeply. It really did operate on all scales from the local materials to the details. And you are very sensitive to making architecture connected to where it is. And I want to ask you for a lesson. How can anyone look at a building or an architecture and recognize that it is connected to people, that it is connected to places? How can we do that? I think it can be very obvious or it can be subtle. That sounds like a vague answer. But I think the subtleties are when you walk in and you see out and you see something really focused and special, all of a sudden you look at how was that accomplished? And I think it's very um, intuitive. And I don't think you have to be an architect to do that. Or the light hits a wall and you start to realize, what is that wall actually made out of? So I think your curiosity gets sparked and you realize there's a lot of intention in what you're looking at. There's not a randomness in any way. And so I think that conception of making architecture of intention that is telling a story starts to register with people as they experience the building. Can you give an example of a building that everybody knows? Oh my gosh. Can I help you? Yeah. How about the Met? Hmm. Well, I would say the Met is the antithesis of what we're talking about for me. I think that the, the Met is a monumental grand neoclassical building. You designed a children's academy in Zambia, Africa, which place I visited. And uh, it is located just a short distance to several villages so that the kids before had to walk like miles to school every day. This really enables them to have a short distance to walk to school. And I watched the film that you produced and it it really shows that it's so difficult to build in Africa, but you created something that is completely local. We did. It was an amazing collaboration. And it was a group of us friends who were working with another friend who started this school for the 14 Plus Foundation. And the locality became very, very important. And Joe's story, which is in some ways the Pequot story, is how can we make this about them? which became essential. That was the value we wanted to bring. So it was something that was new. It was going to address these issues of distance, but its character and quality was something that would be in one moment familiar and in another moment new. And we did that by taking and getting to understand the model of what is a typical Zambian school, which is a big long bar with a shed roof, you know, with a roof and four classrooms. So we recognized each individual classroom, pulled them apart and made spaces that were outside in between them. And then we also popped the roof up. And by popping the roof up, we created four more classrooms on top. And then you, we introduced stairs, which were completely unfamiliar to them. And they, had to, they moved up the stairs. And one of the best parts is some photographs that were sent of these children and they were getting in trouble because they would sneak up the stairs. It was sort of like never being in an elevator before, but they could go to the top of the stairs and then check out their village beyond. And for them, it was a super big deal. So I think we sort of blended their culture 
and new ideas to make it really special. And then the materials and the, all the overall geometries were really inspired by some of the beautiful textiles that many of the women wear in celebration on big, important days. So, You're listening to Designing the 21st Century. Thanks for joining me today. I will be back in two weeks with five outstanding visionaries who participate in shaping a better present and future for people and for the world. Five amazing men who through their work demonstrate how important and hopeful the world of design and architecture is today.